Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride. Right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. This morning, we have an amazing guest, an amazing sober warrior. She's an award-winning TV personality. She's the creator, executive producer, and host of Wake Up With Marcy, a popular talk show. And you can see that ABC, CBS, YouTube, everywhere. And she's also the author of Chaos to Clarity. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Welcome, Marcy Hopkins. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for all that you do. Yeah, well, you know, we're both, I think, on the same mission to empower people and help them yeah. get sober, too. And Absolutely. congratulations on eight years of sobriety. That is huge. Thank you so much. Yes, craziness, but it's been an, an incredible ride. And you're living your best life right now, aren't you? I am living my best life. And I swear every day it gets better. It does. It does. But it hasn't always been like this. And we're here to talk about your book, Chaos to Clarity. So take us back to the chaos. Oh, my God. We don't have enough time for all that chaos. <laughs> Listen, I'll just give you a brief synopsis. My mother had me, she was 19. It was a lot of abuse with her boyfriends. I was beaten at six. I moved in with my grandparents and they raised me till about seventh grade. My mother's an alcoholic. My father's an alcoholic. There's a lot of abandonment issues there, but I was grateful to have my grandparents that were raising me in those very impressionable years. And, you know, there was, there's, there was some pain there too. My grandfather had a, a very bad temper, but I am grateful that I had that time with them. Then when I was in seventh grade, my mother remarried and we thought this guy was just going to be our knight in shining armor. And we'd finally had this beautiful life. And then the sexual abuse started, my mother's drinking, his drinking. I mean, it was, talk about chaos. I mean, I don't even remember, you know, a lot of the years there because I think that I just shut down just to cope with that. But then, then I found drinking because, you know, my, I saw my mother drinking, my grandfather drinking. It was like very normal to have drinking in my life. It was in my life every single day. And once I found drinking, I found that it helped me to forget the pain. And so the drinking in high school, the weekends, the blackout, it was, it was hard. And I, 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 it was chaos trying to get through college. I had no direction. My, my parents didn't ever give me that. I didn't have that stability or understanding of like, who's Marcy? What do I want to do? I just knew that escaping felt the best. And now I was going to get to run away, go to college and when I started off in college, I really had every intention of, you know, doing the right thing. But of course, I found those that were partying. And so I stopped going to classes and, and I was not, you know, I had incompletes in every class. And my grandmother, I guess I was around 19, 20 years old. My grandmother was like, you know, let's take you to get some testing, see what, see where your interests lie. And through that, that testing, I saw that I was a very creative soul and I ended up going to the art Institute for the media industry. Now I ended up getting an internship and, and ended up getting great jobs. I mean, I rose the ranks in, in, in my work and I was working for Fox cable group, 
But during this time, I was having like really bad relationships. I, you know, I had this addiction to, I would leave the relationship if I felt that I wasn't getting what I needed. I would find something outside. I would find somebody else and start another relationship so that nobody could hurt me. I was always guarded. I had so many walls up. So I had, you know, these, these walls up, I had these patterns and again, drinking. You're talking about patterns. Okay. Like three minutes, you've almost told your life story, but this has taken you decades. You've been in chaos decades, right? Yeah. And you really actually faced your first abandonment at six years old. Yeah. So at six years old, my mother had this boyfriend and we would stay over there a lot. And they were partying all the time. And here I am, I'm six years old. I'm staying in the guest room and they would sleep till God knows when. And, you know, a child wakes up early and now I'm bored. So I started exploring the room I was in, finding things to do. And there was this Tootsie Roll can. And this is where I start my book is with this story, this Tootsie Roll can. And here I'm thinking it's candy. Well, then I find out there's coins in there. And I didn't know the value of the coins. I just knew silver was more than the brown coins, right? So then I decided, well, I'm going to take all the silver coins. They'll never know, right? And so I take all the silver coins. And then when my mother's boyfriend woke up, he actually walked into the room and he went to grab that Tootsie Roll can. And he was, you know, saying, well, why is this so light? And I'm like, I have no idea. You know, I'm like scared to death. Now I've been caught. And I said, I have no idea. And he didn't believe me. And he found the coins. And then he took me into the room where my mother was laying in bed and beat me in front of her. And I'll never forget my mother just laying there and not doing anything to save me. And then once the beating ended, she came over to me and basically was like, okay, we're going to a family party. We were just by chance going to my grandparents that day for a family party. And she said, please don't tell him, tell them anything. And a number of things happened while I was there. And I just broke down. And I remember telling my grandmother, showing my grandmother, because my whole backside was black and blue. And she was mortified. And she came out right away, got my grandfather, and they kicked my mother and her boyfriend out of the house. And my aunts told me later on that I stuck my tongue out at her because what else is a six-year-old going to do? I was like so hurt. And then my grandparents offered for me to, to make a choice to live with them or go back with my mother. And so at six years old, I mean, imagine having to make this choice. And I just, I decided to stay with my grandparents because I just didn't feel safe with my mom. I mean, literally we were living in an apartment and I remember her working and I, I mean, talk about a latch kid key. I was a latch kid key at five, you know, I had to go to the apartment and wait for her. So I remember that conversation. I was standing in my grandmother's bedroom, looking outside over the living room and telling my mother that I decided to stay with my grandparents and you know, you just want so badly that it's like, no, you can't do that. I want you to be with me. I will leave Tim, you know, you are everything to me. And that didn't happen. And so that's where that first feeling of ultimate abandonment happened. And when that happens, like it was devastating. 
You talk in your book about children, their nervous systems develop. So your nervous system is developing at this young age. And then your mom meets this other guy. Was his name really Richard Dick? It was Dick Dick. But yeah, I mean, our nervous systems, right? So you have this constant state of anxiousness. And as a child, you don't know what to do with these feelings, right? And then also with my grandfather, I mean, his anger would get, I'll never forget. I mean, I might have been eight years old and there was this huge knockdown fight and like he, you know, took his gun out. He shot in the the bedroom. I thought he shot the dog. Like, how do you recover from this? Right. And then this is what you're living with. And this is what is developing inside of you. And your, your brain is becoming wired in a way to be in that fight or flight all of the time. So you kind of went from dysfunction to dis- dysfunction. Yeah, it was the the lesser of two evils, I guess I'll put it that way. So then your mom meets Richard Dick. Richard Dick, yep. And I honestly thought it was going to, you know, he later now I understand he was grooming me, right? I mean, here I am, this vulnerable young girl just looking for love so desperately and a father figure. And he saw that and he was kind and giving and nurturing and giving me gifts. And he saw how that would make me feel right. Happy. And, and then we went to, he took me to a movie and, and in hindsight, he took me to see Porky's at 12 years old, right? Like what man takes their 12 year old stepdaughter to see Porky's. And as this movie is going on, he has his arm around me. And and it's it's just crazy because I remember in that moment feeling so safe. And then within seconds, he started moving his hand down my leg. And I'm pushing away as hard as I can. And this man's like, you know, 6'1", 6'2", 200 pounds. I mean, he's a huge man. And I was pushing as hard as I could. And he kept pushing against me. And then finally, I jumped up and ran out of the theater. And you're devastated at this point, because before this happened, you were seeing your moms with this new guy, and they're getting married, and then you're going to have this new life, right? Beautiful life. That's, you know, really that fairy tale life that I never had, that I was going to have my mom and this great dad. And just that it was all shattered in that moment. Yeah. So you run outside and. Yeah, I run outside. And that's when now I I start crumbling again. Like I'm losing myself. He offers to buy me luggage and I get to go on this trip now. And that's how he calmed me down. And I promise I'm never happen again. And, you know, I don't know why I did that. And, and I believed him. Of course, you want to believe that that will never happen again. Yeah, and then I went home with a secret. Yes, at 12 years old, have to carry the secret. So you guys end up going on a vacation, and then, so you went to Europe, and then you went to Thailand. Is that where the next event happened? So I went to, to Europe with on this trip, and then with the school. And then I came home, and they're like, oh, well, we're going to go. Richard has a, a work trip to Hong Kong and Singapore. We're going to go with them. And here I'm like, I've never traveled anywhere. And I'm like, oh my God, like in the same summer, I get to go to Europe and Hong Kong and Singapore. And now I will say that during all that time, 
I had a feeling that he was doing things to me in my sleep, but I was a very deep sleeper and I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't prove it. And, and this is another thing, like our intuition is so strong and we keep pushing it away, right? We, we know when things are wrong, we know th when things are right, but we have to learn to listen to that. Right. And so my intuition was telling me so strongly that he was doing something to me at, uh, while I was sleeping, but I really didn't have the proof. And we go to, we go to Hong Kong and we're by the pool and then we end up, we're going to go to dinner that night. So I wanted, you know, I'm in a stage where I want to look perfect, right? I'm like 13 at this time and I want to go do my hair and my makeup and I want to look pretty for dinner. And I'm in the shower and there's this clear shower and the door has these slats. And I look over and I see him looking underneath the, the door and to look at me and I jump out of the shower and then I have to wait till I, I see him move. And then my mother gets back to the room and Richard wants to be alone. And so now I have to leave and I'm devastated, you know, well, it's so interesting, right? I'm so devastated by what happened, but what I made it about was that I couldn't do my hair. A lot of times when people lash out at you, it's not about you at all. It's not about even the circumstance most time, it's something else. There's something deeper, right? Like, right. So and you've been holding the secret. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, for at least a year, this had been going on. And so then my mother and I leave and she's like, I'll get someone to do your hair. So I go out, we can't find any place to blow out my hair. And then we get in a big fight and she, then she starts strangling me. We're in, we're at these causeways over these waterways and she starts strangling me and then I was just start screaming at her that I can't believe she's doing this and protecting a man that's abusing her daughter. And then she stops. And then I explain everything to her and listen, she said a lot more than this, but the reality is what the, the gist of it was wear more clothes when you're asleep and I can't leave. Basically it's your fault. She didn't make it my fault, but it was a circumstance again where she made it about herself and she couldn't leave an abusive situation and it was harming her daughter. Gotcha. Gotcha. So at this part, you say this is where the damage is done and you don't really remember 13 through 15 and stuff. Yeah. So basically what I did do is I started looking for attention from boys. I started looking at love a different way. Like if I gave myself sexually or did things and then, then somebody would like me. And that's, that's where that took me. You know, some, some people that are sexually abused wear oversized clothes and, and just completely shut down and never want to be touched. But for me, it made me more like promiscuous, if you will, because I thought if I if I do something with you sexually and look perfect on the outside, then I will mask everything and you will like me. And but then it became my superpower, too, that I would use my looks and my body to to lure men in that I wanted. So then I had control if I wanted you. So that's what it became for me. 
And I was always in relationships, but I was always looking outside of relationships too, because, you know, I'm, I'm broken. I'm finding broken guys I'm with. And I know now sober, how much I was part of the dysfunction in the relationships, but I mean, they were abusive, but I knew nothing different. And I would just go into it trying to say, I'm going to fix I was always going to try to fix someone else when the reality is I needed to be fixing myself. So you get into drinking. Oh yeah. Uh, drinking every day. No, I was just going to say once I, out of high school, I drank every day. Then at 19, you got a DUI. Mm-hmm. I got a DUI. Then I got a public intoxication. And then not too long after another one, the DUI. Yeah. Well, then you quit college three times, didn't you? Yeah. So I was going to these junior colleges, just trying to find my way. And that's what I, in my little shortened version, I was telling you, I was going and then I would just end up, it just became an escape. It was just another way to escape. Right. So now I get to get out of, once I graduated high school, I left my mom's house. All right. And, and, and one thing I will say that we didn't discuss, and maybe, maybe people are like, well, where's Richard at this point? My mother and Richard got a divorce right before my senior year of high school. And I had, I had moved. This is another thing. Like I, that's why I was so fluid is because I moved all the time. So I never really had roots anywhere. I never knew how to bond with people. People became very replaceable. Like, you know, I, if it didn't work out with you, there was, you know, other people, it didn't matter. I I begged her not to move from where we were, where I was going to high school, because I didn't want to have to start over once again. And so once I, I was living with my mother, her drinking was off the the rails, like it was so bad. And I was kind of playing the role of of the mother actually at that point and living in fear all the time, if she was even going to make it home, because I knew she was drinking and driving all the time. But anyway, once I once I graduated high school, I left right away and never looked back and got into partying, got into clubbing. But I knew like college, that's just what you did, right? That's you go to high school, you go to college. And so I tried that out and then I was partying, dropping out. And and then I took that testing and that's what took me to the Art Institute, which during that time is when I got the DUIs and I actually couldn't drive. And I, I mean, I remember living where I was living and I had riding my bike to get to school. And so, I mean, I did what I had to do. It's interesting because I was so weak and a victim, but I also had this strength inside of me that I had built up just to survive. And I knew I had to do something. Yeah. You kind of turned into a a survivor with what you knew at that time, right? Exactly. Exactly. So all of these things became my powers, right? So I went to the art Institute and I ended up which, you know, it's so interesting. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you felt the same way. Like, I'm like, how the hell did I get through that? Right. And then I ended up getting a job, an internship in television. And that started my path in TV. Like, yes, I have a TV show right now, but I've always worked in media. That's just been my industry. And I was successful. I was very successful in the industry, but again, drinking every day. Sometimes it got worse. And then sometimes it got better, right? So I would change locations and change people in my life. But it's one of those things where we always take ourselves wherever we go, right? So 
So Marcy looks great on the outside, but she just tore up on the inside. And you were like this nomad. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up making my way to California through through work. And that's where I met the gentleman that ended up being my husband. He's my husband. And so we got married and I was doing really well uh, again in work. I, I still don't know how. I mean, they always said, uh, you know, like I had fire in the belly. Like, I I mean, I did my job, but I just, you know, I don't know if you ever, I, I think about it like, God, if I weren't drinking, like how well I would have done. <laughs> you know, I've talked to a lot of people and I always thought that ex-cons, people living under the bridge, because we're taught you don't have a problem until you you're living these scenarios. Yeah. Since this last recovery, that's always kind of what I thought too. But since building Silvertown and everything, I think the majority of people are functioning and they don't even know they have a problem. Exactly. And I didn't. I I mean, even, well, at those early years when I got those two DUIs, I did try to stop drinking and I did try to, I was looking at myself, don't get me wrong. But then I went like three months without drinking. And then I convinced myself it was going to be okay. And and once I started drinking again, you know, it's like, oh, I'll only drink this much. I'll only do this. But ultimately, it always ends up getting a little worse. But I was always able to drink. And, you know, I guess the functioning alcoholic, I guess, is what I was. You wrote in your book, failing at quitting pushed you deeper into depression. Yeah, I mean, we think if we don't quit or we don't follow through with it, that we are the ultimate failure. But this is part of this journey. You know, like we think that if we don't quit, if we quit and we don't we don't do well in that that first time we try, that that we're never going to do it. We're never going to be able to quit. But as many times as I tried to quit, which actually thinking about it, I only tried to quit like three times in all the years that I was drinking. And I don't know, it, it, you know, we, we convince ourselves that we don't have the problem, even though we forget about the, the chaos of our lives and what is happening. And I, when I would go back into drinking, it would just get worse. It would just get worse. And I think this was more like in 2014, after some things had happened where you were, you, you were Googling things. Yeah. Okay. So what happened with that time? I'm sorry. I was going through a, re a really hard time. I was, you know, the, the interesting thing is I was drinking, but I, I didn't, I didn't know if I had a drinking problem. Like I was thinking about it a lot. I was trying to figure out ways not to drink or actually not to not drink, but to tame my drinking, right? So whether it was acupuncture or yoga or meditation, like somehow figure out how I could get this under control because I didn't want to turn into my mother, okay? So then I did end up going to the 12-step program. I I went on a trip and I didn't drink. So I'm like, God, I got this. And I, I am not like the people in the rooms, right? I don't have these stories. I've, I'm a good mom. I, I have a good marriage. I, um, I, I'm good in the community. Like I, I'm contributing, right? I, I'm good. I'm just drinking wine at night. Like what's, what's, what's the problem? 
So I convinced myself I was okay. And it was that following year that I got in front of the camera and the roller coaster began for me. And it really heightened my insecurities, my self-loathing, the hatred I had for myself the feeling of being judged all the time. And so I started drinking more because I used alcohol as my liquid courage. And because I already had the the issues with drinking, this just pushed me over the edge. That slippery slope that, that we talk about, like there's the managing the alcohol and then there's like your life is literally going out of control. I was having issues with my husband. I was drinking and driving. I was, you know, feeling a failure of with my my kids. The anger that I had was off the chart, reactive to everything, my victim mode. Like it was it was hell. I and I was feeding the hell because I didn't know anything else. It's that chaos where we say we don't want it anymore but we know nothing else. Cause I remember times where there'd be a little peace, a little calmness, and I would feed that beast just to create that chaos because I didn't know anything else. And so the hate and the depression and the self-loathing was at an all time high. And my drinking was at an all time high when I had my final break and my uh, rock bottom, which was a, a final DUI. Sorry, I jumped a little ahead there, but you had married your husband. And in the beginning, you guys got along so well. No. You didn't? No, I actually, for me, so you know when I say, when I admitted I was an alcoholic and he embraced me and I felt love for the first time. The thing is, is that even when someone loved me, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe I was lovable. I didn't know how to love and I didn't know how to receive love. And that's because, I mean, I was going through the motions, but I, I never felt, I never felt that love like I feel today. I didn't know how to feel it. I knew that this is what I was supposed to do. And I knew this man was very good and he was, you know, good to me. And I thought this would be a good life. And I loved, I I loved him as much as I knew how to love but today I know a different type of love, if that makes sense. It sure does. <laughs> it sure does. But even in that time, the alcohol was separating you from even that love that you knew back then. Yeah. It was really isolating you. And throughout your life, you would just change locations, change people. Were you kind of feeling that same way there towards the end of that? I, at the the very end of my drinking, yes, I wanted a divorce. I wanted out of my life. I wanted a change. I was extremely unhappy. Mm-hmm. And then when the DUI happened, it was like this magical thing happened. So again, I was using alcohol to cope even more so now with being in front of the camera and, and walking these runway shows. And the, my last day I had a gig and I ultimately ended up drinking wine. I, you know, I'd, you know, they talk about that thermos, you know, that for water. Right. But if you see a lot of moms, a lot of times that's wine, it's not water. And so that I, could, I would carry that with me when I would go on jobs 
and I drank and then my friend met me and then we went out afterwards and it was shit show to be honest. Like, I didn't even realize I got behind the wheel of the car. And I'm so, so grateful still to this day that nothing happened first and foremost to anyone else and then myself. But that night I went to bed and I just, I had so much anger, you know, like if my life were better, this wouldn't have happened. But then when I woke up the next morning, I just knew I finally surrendered and I stopped the fight and the lies. And I said, I've got to help myself. I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem. This is not right. I'm going to lose everything. So it was like, even though I, I thought the day before I didn't want anything, the next day I woke up and I'm like, holy crap, I'm going to lose everything I love. Everything I've worked so hard for in my life. And I went downstairs and I sat down with my husband and I looked at him and I said, I have a problem and I need help. And I'm so sorry. And then tears are flowing and and, you know, he could have gone two ways, right? He could have just said, well, too bad. You need to get help and I'm gone. But what he did was he embraced me and he said, I'm here for you. And I'm telling you, it was the first time in all my life, 2015, that I felt, I felt love. I felt love. And it was there for me all this time. And it was like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I mean, honestly, there was such a relief. And I went to, he took, he drove me to an AA meeting that day. I mean, I remember sitting in that AA meeting. I went in the bathroom and threw up. It was horrible. <laughs> and then I never looked back. I, I just, I knew in that moment and made the commitment. I was going to do everything I could do. And I was going to stop trying to, control my own life. And I surrendered and best thing I ever did. You said you were tired, soul level tired, soul level tired. Yeah. I could relate with that so well. Yeah, it is. It is exhausting to be an addict, an alcoholic. It is exhausting. It is. It is. So you start yeah. your new sober journey, right? I started my new sober journey. And it's not, it. listen, it's not easy. There's a lot of work involved. But I'll tell you, as much therapy as I had in my life, I, I still needed the therapy. But it was in those 12 steps that the miracle of healing and peeling back the layers and getting to the root of my, my trauma, it happened in those 12 steps. And it doesn't just happen overnight. No, no, it takes time, just like anything. I mean, you've got to learn a lot of tools to help yourself. And you've got to get out of your own pity party, right? You know, give of yourself. And and it's helping others, even when you're early on in your sobriety. I, I mean, I just learned so many tools to help myself and realize that that there are things that you can do, even in when that craving is at its all-time high like move a muscle change a thought was a big one for me big one the gratitude jar learning to live in gratitude huge for me meditation huge surrendering to my higher power praying to to god 
the, the, the readings every day, the daily reflections, like God, like what you're literally doing is rewiring your brain. I love that you say that because at Silvertown, we teach rewired two times a week, but we're going to three times a week. Mm -hmm. And that's from Erica Spiegelman. She actually gifted us her program to teach where we rewire our brains. And then your rewired brain, you went from victimhood to now you're a survivor again, aren't you? With a different mindset. A, a completely different mindset. And and listen, we heal every day. We grow every day. We, we can't stop the work. It is daily work. But I don't even like to call it work because it's daily action. It's daily action. Because, you know, I am... I am so spiritually connected today and so connected to my intuition and my guidance and my purpose. And what I love knowing is that we all have a true purpose in our lives that will bring us ultimate joy. And we are all supposed to live in love and joy and connection and, and through a divine entity, right? Like that d- divine energy. And I, I I am just so grateful for the life that I, I've been given. So into your first year, yeah, you're at an AA meeting and you're speaking. That's the first time you told everybody that you love yourself and it was uncomfortable. So the first time I said, you know, I love myself. I have self-love. I felt embarrassed. I felt uncomfortable. I felt like people were going to look at me like it was like an ego driven thing. But what I've learned is that it all starts with self-love. And then from there, we are able to be our best selves for others. It's really is for ourselves and everybody that surrounds us. I mean, you are at your very best with self-love. In your early years, you had a lot of self-hatred. Yes. And now in your sobriety, which starts with just not drinking, right? Because if you drink, it just ruins everything. But in your sobriety, you've learned how to love yourself. And that hasn't been easy, right? Exactly. So, you know, we stopped drinking and our brains, and and I love that you guys are helping with this, like our brains, our bodies, our dopamine levels, like chemically, everything is changing in our bodies. And it takes a long time for those things to change and shift and heal inside of our bodies, right? And and then to find that clarity. How can we think clearly when we are putting foreign substances into our body? It's not possible. And, And even if it's not a foreign substance and we have an addiction to something else, it is the dopamine that, that hit that we're getting, that's the drug. That's the high we're looking for. That feeling, that good feeling. So it's finding the, that that reward system in our body, that feel-good reward system in, in positive ways. You know, like, like today, like meditating. God, I felt good about that. I, I ate something that was healthy. I felt good about that. I worked out. I got up and moved my body. I feel good about that. You know, it's finding those things and those little things. Every time you feel good about something, 
you get rewarded. Your body naturally rewards you. And now you're getting rewarded by doing the things that make you feel good, like giving back. But it took a year just for you to get comfortable with you saying you love yourself. And then things have just grown from there. All of a sudden, you know, what's my purpose? And then you start building a TV show. Yeah. So I, you know, I was in the rooms. It was about a year in and I knew that I still wanted to do something. I've always been somebody, a worker. I wanted to be involved in things. And I, and I was also had my kids. So I, I knew that I wanted to get out of the, the industry because that's what brought me down to my knees with, when I got in front of the camera. So I told a friend of mine that I wanted to help him because he had built a studio. I'm like, listen, I got a lot of contacts, know a lot of people. Let me help you. I'll bring people into your studio. I brought an actress in that I had done a job with and brought her in and she started talking about this talk show. So it was like this seed was planted and I was going to be the one that brought in the guests. I was going to be the one booking the show, bringing in money for the show. Well, they started doing some shady stuff behind my back. And so I pulled away, but yet that seed had been planted. And now I'm like, why can't I do this? I can do, I can host a talk show. I can book the show. I can do it all, right? And so I finally, after I'd been thinking about it for so long, decided to just go for it. I had my phone. It was when Facebook Live was at an all-time high and it was like getting so popular. So I just started this talk show and I thought it out, like what, what was I going to be doing? I was going to be interviewing entrepreneurs and nonprofits, giving back to the community because that's what, what was important to me. And then, so helping the entrepreneur, but also helping those in the community to know the businesses that are available to you. So I started doing that. It started taking off. So it, I was doing really well and people would start, I created a business out of this and I got more comfortable and was teaching myself how to do this. And, and then about a year in, I, I, somebody had come into my life and, you know, the universe starts bringing you all these people and unfolding these things for you. And he was going to do this other talk show. And I said, you know what? I want to do a bit. I want to do more. I want, I want to tell people stories. I want to give people hope. And, and literally in a day, wake up with Marcy was born. And I, and, and within a month I had the show on the TV. You know, what's so cool. You're like a general now in the sober army, right? Because <laughs> it seems like all of us, when we get sober, we want to give back. Everybody wants to reach back and help people. And yeah. you're able to do it in such a big way with Wake Up With Marcy. You're bringing in doctors, psychologists, and you're talking about everything, mindsets. Even if you're not addicted to alcohol or substances, you can get so much information from your show. Yeah. Yeah. You just had the Navy SEAL. On oh, there. yes. Yes. So Brian, his name was Michael Bronham. Yeah. Yeah. You have so many amazing topics, but here's the cool thing. This is what sobriety has brought you. And not only that, you're like living this new love that you'd never even had decades before that. Well, see, I never trusted myself. I never thought I, even though I was doing well in in work and everything, I honestly, I don't know, like people may have thought I was confident in a way, but I really wasn't. I mean, I couldn't even talk in a meeting. I was so petrified of saying anything wrong, not looking perfect, 
never feeling that I was smart. I always thought I was so stupid. Like I just constantly telling myself how stupid I was. But today, what I love is I became curious because whereas life was about drinking every day, it became about evolving and finding things that I enjoyed, right? And growing and understanding who's Marcy. I didn't know who I was. I was always living for everybody else. And I lost myself at such a young age. And I lived in such a survival mode that I never knew what I liked. So I started asking a lot of questions. I started new experiences. Like it it wasn't about drinking all the time because like going on vacations, it was like, where are you going to go to drink, right? You're going to be by the pool. You're going to drink. But then you, then you start wanting to do things. And, and it was just through these experiences and through this evolution and wanting this now new love of learning that things started to just grow for me. And I started to trust myself. I started to believe in myself. I stopped trying to be perfect because nobody's perfect. And I think you try to be perfect because everything's so uncontrollable and, and the chaos inside, you're trying to make everything perfect on the outside. So I was able to mirror the two, right? So trust myself internally and and not care so much about on the outside, but what what was going on on the inside. And that's where I was able to say, you know what, this is hard. I'm fearful. There's things I do all the time that scare me to death, but I can trust myself that I can do it. And you know what, if I fail today, I can learn from it and I can I can take criticism now constructive criticism before I couldn't do it because I was just such a victim. I was such a victim and I don't have to be a victim today. Now you're not just a spectator in your life. You're present in your life with your experiences. You're teaching people how to get out of that victimhood mode yes, and get into the survival mode. And I just believe you're a huge gift to the community that you're helping to all of us, to the, to the addicts and the people that aren't addicted and then you have the dragonflies all over your book. Tell us about the dragonflies. So it's the book is chaos to clarity, seeing the signs and breaking the cycle. So seeing the signs for me ultimately is seeing signs from the other side. So once I started getting sober and started getting clearer and started connecting spiritually, I started seeing so many magical signs from the other side, God moments, right? And so I moved, it was about a year into my sobriety. We moved from one house to another in my community. And I was sitting outside by the pool and there was a dragonfly that was kind of dipping his head and it made me look up. And when I looked up, there were hundreds of dragonflies that were all around me. And I've never felt such a presence of God in that moment. And I knew that I was being supported and guided and that I was on my path. I was on the right path. It was just like, there was just such this feeling of, we got you, right? I felt like every one of those little dragonflies was an angel. And I want to say that I never saw that again. I've lived in this house for, I, let's see. I've lived in this house seven years now, and it's never happened again. 
there was a ladybug story, which is in the book, but it just became, it just, it represents the transformation in my life that God is with me. And every time I see a dragonfly today, which I see them a lot, I know that I'm being guided and that, that God and my angels are with me. So now I have it on all my branding. My husband, like he knew that I, that miracle of that day and my first year of sobriety, he gave me this necklace. And then like every year it's just been about dragonflies. And now everybody knows me. Every time I see a dragonfly, Marcy, I think of you, you know? So I just love it. I just love that I can have that feeling of connectedness to the other side by the presence of the dragonfly. Marcy, you're such a lighthouse. Reading this book, I've really been able to see the transformation of your life to where you are now. And it's just incredible. And it's incredible what you're doing with those around you. And you're reaching back and lifting people up. My gosh, you're so busy. I don't even know how you do it. You have <laughs> nonprofits that you work with. You're doing your TV. I, I saw your Facebook page, your webpage on the internet. I mean, I'm like... My gosh, how does she get all this stuff done? That's amazing. <laughs> well, I do have a team now, so I am thankful for that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I was just in OK Magazine. Like, I, I have these pinch me moments that I'm just like, God, that's me. Like, this is happening. The reality is, is I just know that we grow in what we're doing so that our mission and our voice can be stronger. And so we can help more people, right? It's not about the ego of the growing and what we're doing. It's about the purpose and the mission. And I am just so grateful. Even in the first year of my book, I mean, last year I launched my book, March of 2022. And so March, 2023 was a year that I had my book out. It didn't, you know, just go boom. And everybody was reading my book, right? I was like, like, you know, God, what? What's going on? Why, why is, I know you had me write this book for a purpose, but now it's happening. And this is, this is what we need to know is that we need to be patient in everything that we're doing and enjoy that journey. And there's Abraham Hicks is someone I listen to. Joe Dispenza is someone I listen to. I, I recommend reading The Secret. I believe it's Rhonda Burns. You know, these manifestation, law of attraction, understanding the universe and the connection and our beliefs and how we feel about ourselves. We have so much power and we find that power through the clarity of sobriety and, and taking the drug out of our system. And you have to give yourself time. You have to give yourself grace and know that it's possible that that's the thing. Know that it's possible even if you are one day in, that that you have the miracle of a day and that, that we are here to give you, and especially you as Sober Town, giving these people the gift of how to do this. Boom. And you're a perfect example of like death, wanting to throw everything away, divorce your husband, just go to life. You're living your best life ever. And so I'm going to tell you, I have the best relationship with my husband now too. So, <laughs> Right. And you dedicated your book to him. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, like I just, it's 
crazy, crazy to feel the love that I have for my husband and, and imagine growing old with him. I never had that before. And it's, wow, it's pretty cool. Marcy, thank you so much for coming here on Sober Town and sharing yeah. your story. And I please, you guys, go get Chaos to Clarity, Seeing the Signs and Breaking the Cycles. Thank you so much. Thank you. Real quick, I just want everybody to know there's so much more amazing information that Marcy and I just didn't have time to get to in this amazing book, Chaos to Clarity. She has a, a whole section where she goes through the steps with you. you know, seeing the signs, breaking the cycles, taking action, suggestions for helping self. There's just so much more in here on the clarity end of this book. Really amazing tools that can help you on your destination, going from the chaos to the clarity. I can already tell you it's helping my wife and I. We're each going to go through it, and then we're going to go through it together. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Again, I just want to thank Marcy for coming onto the Sobertown podcast and sharing her incredible journey and being so brave and vulnerable with us and in her book. So boom. Thank you, Marcy.